You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans 13. Respect for authority. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. I want to introduce myself to you. My name's Jonathan, one of the pastors here. Glad we got that over with. I now want to introduce you to myself in 1999. All right, this is, here I am. I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I'm thinking studious, conscientious. Um, I don't know, like... Probably just a good example for my fellow peers. Any other thoughts? No? Okay. That is a picture of a kid who is disenchanted with the world. I'll tell you from experience. Disenchanted, disinterested. Bit aimless. That's a kid at the end of year 12, end of uh, the year 1999, looking forward to a new millennium, but not with any great hope about the future. Instead of reading the books that I was meant to read for my year 12 classes, I was reading uh, philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. If you know him, um, you'll know that uh, he was the guy who declared that God was dead. Um, something that's not often remarked upon, though, is that he said that with a heavy heart. He, he, he knew in his heart of hearts that God is dead, um, but he said it l- lamentably because he understood that without God, uh, there is no reason for anyone to do anything of virtue. Without God, there is no objective standard by which we should live. And so he came to the conclusion that the main driving motivation for humanity is uh, the will to power, right? This is why we get up in the morning, will to power. I, I need to garner for myself power so that I can live in uh, authority over others, basically. It's uh, from Nietzsche that, um, that Hitler took some of his most... Um, prescient views and really the, some of the fuel behind the, the Nazi push, the, the, the superman, right? The super race came from 
the work of Friedrich Nietzsche. Hey, can I get someone to, to lower those blinds at the back? Because I can't see you guys and you're too pretty to miss. Thanks, mate. So Friedrich Nietzsche getting into this philosophy and coming to the conclusion, like him quite lamentably, that, yeah, actually, despite what I've been brought up to believe, God is dead, and because God is dead, there is really no purpose of life. There is no path for me to follow. There is no standard by which I judge my actions. The will to power um, is the driving force of all things, economics, politics, relationships, and uh, therefore, might is right, and, and, and if I'm going to have any purpose in life, it's going to be just sort of the accumulation of power. I realised that that wasn't really going to happen for me. I wasn't conscientious enough, and so what you're left with then is just, bleh, like nothing. Nothing, right? That's, that's what I'm left with. From there, I found a really easy route into anarchism. So anarchism sounds like something an 18-year-old kid came up with in his bedroom, but it's actually quite a, quite a cogent philosophy or worldview. Anarchism holds that um, people are free. The individual is free and the individual is sovereign and that there ought not be any sovereign over the individual. That states and nations are man-made constructions and they are, um, they are um, evil. Like, uh, philosophers will say, a priori evil, right? They cannot help but be evil. All hierarchy is oppressive and should be resisted. Um, government should never tell you what to do. There should, no, there should not be any civil laws, magistrates or police or anything else. People should be free. And I got into that. That started making a lot of sense because if there is no God, then there is no authority, right? Um, it's only human constructions that we kowtow to, so let's stop doing that and we can be our own people. And, you know, because people are essentially good and um, essentially good to one another, then we'll be able to figure this out, thing out together. Then six months after this, about six months after this, in fact, this week, it's the 18th anniversary of, um, of my conversion. About, that was about six months after this. I became a Christian. And so, um, you know yourself, when you become a Christian, you don't just like all of a sudden become an angel. Um, you don't all of a sudden become Jesus in, 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 in the flesh. It took me a little while to kind of move out of that anarchist worldview. So what I did was move from anarchist to Christian anarchist. And um, that's an interesting philosophy. Again, some people hold to this. It, uh, I do feel like in hindsight it's a bit like going from a, like an, a, a crack addict to a cushion crack addict, right? There's, there's some issues with that. But this idea is all that I told you about before, but the central tenet is that God is the only pure authority. And so therefore only God can tell us what to do. Uh, there sh again, there shouldn't be nations, governments, employers, masters, um, and there shouldn't even be church authority, pastors and all that stuff. We should be free. So I got, I got to that point. And then soon after I became a Christian, this guy that I was rooming with in, in America where I was at the time, he gave me this, this collection of essays by C.S. Lewis. And it's part of the reason why every sermon needs a C.S. Lewis quote. Here's one right now. This is what I read. He said, speaking of democracy and politics, he said, I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man. I, I believe in the... the the utter depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. I think most people believe in 
democracy for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Now that's true partially because C.S. Lewis said it, though you don't want to take that all the way. He's a little bit kooky on some things. But it's mostly true because we know history. We know what happens when men have unchecked power. Things go very badly wrong. Um, one of the great ironies of, if you're into like, politics and the history of politics and geopolitical stuff, is like, the, the guys who are most into, like the Marxists who are most into the, the, pe- the power of the people to overthrow authority, they end up being dictators. Why? Because we're all broken and fallen. And as soon as someone puts you in charge, you turn into a bad person. And if you don't think that, then you don't know yourself very well. If someone hands you a whole lot of money, power, and weapons, you will go badly wrong. Right? This, is, this is God's grace to us that we're just schmucks like we are. Right? It's true not only of governments, but of the church. We're going to hear Paul in this passage says, the sword is given to the government to exercise God's authority. God has never given that to the church. And whenever the church has taken up the sword, we've gone bolting away from Jesus and his will and ways, all right? So let's just get that clear. Anarchism, Christian anarchism, into sort of democracy, but understanding democracy in light of the fact that God's word tells us who we are. He tells us that we're broken and fallen and that we need him to be ultimately over us, as the kids were saying in this video. He ultimately needs to be our treasure, our priority over all things, otherwise we go wrong all the time. So whether you can relate to the anarchism thing, I'm thinking probably no one here does, or, or, or some other form of sort of um, view of politics, it's, it's worthwhile knowing what has shaped us as people. Some of you have come from nations outside of Australia and you have your own experience of politics and government and so on. If you have grown up in Australia like I have, then you know that you have been shaped, or you should know you've been shaped to distrust government, to distrust authority. You'll know that from an early age you were taught all, politics are mor- all politicians are morons, right? They're, they're all morons, can't be trusted. When it comes to an election, we're just going to vote for the least moronic guy, right, or girl. That's the way we view things. We, we, we've been shaped by this our whole lives. It really goes back to the very beginnings of white Australia, like, right, we're a convict nation. You get a bunch of convicts together, that who's going to vote for government, governing authority? Not many of them. Because they're the guys who put you in chains and sent you around the world, right? Cut your arms off, I don't know, whatever happened. So we've had that from the beginning. It is, just test this with people who aren't from Australia. Tell them one of our national heroes is a murderous bushranger called Ned Kelly. They'll be like, what are you, what's wrong with you people? That's not a hero. He's the bad guy, right? But no, to us, it's like, yeah, we like that. Stick it to the man, even if you're shooting the man, right? Like, we, we dig that. So we need to know our culture, that kid in the photo, we're coming into a collision with the passage before us this morning. It is a collision. 
We're going to be tested this morning. We're going to have things said to us that don't really rub us the right way, that don't seem like they fit with the prevailing culture. And what we need to do, remember a couple of weeks ago, Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to this world. Do not conform to the prevailing culture. Like you can be as nationalistic, jingoistic as you like, like Australia is the greatest nation on earth, but as soon as you put that above the authority of God's word, you're wrong and you will continue to be wrong. Yes, Australia, great. Democracy, freedom, liberty, that's awesome. But wherever the word of God challenges and changes our culture, we need to go with the word. Right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So with that in mind, let's go to the text, all right? Verse 1 of chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He just said the same thing in two different ways because he knows we hear that and it rakes against us. But what he wants us to know before anything else, is that all authority belongs to God and is given by God. Now you need to know, as soon as you hear that, all right, maybe this is just me and I'm projecting onto you guys, I don't care, whatever. But I hear that, oh, that, oh, it doesn't feel good. There's still a little bit of the anarchist there, right? It doesn't feel good. And so within my mind or my heart, there's the, probably both, there's a couple of lawyers that are just writing out like excuses. Here's why you don't need to obey that. Good in principle, but... What you need to know about the context which challenges that is that these Christians that Paul is writing to are Christians that are subject to a hostile government. You, You learn about Roman history, right? Christians are the ones being fed to lions. Christians are the ones being crucified all along the streets and then lit on fire so they can be streetlights for the Romans and their famous streets. Right? The, the, this is the government that they're sitting under. And Paul says to them, be subject to that government. For there is no authority except that which is God, God has established. So if you think you've got to get out of jail free card, well, how much more do they? And yet Paul says, no. Be subject. And there's no, like, I can't see any little footnote that says, except if they're morons or whatever. Like, he's just saying, black and white, be subject. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So here's the governing principle, pardon the pun. It's like, all government, all authority is broken. Like, you don't have an exception. It's all the same everywhere and forever. It's all broken. It's all sinful. Yes, some of them are morons. All of them make mistakes. There's always going to be controversy and chaos. But you need to submit and respect them because God has put them there. And really, underneath that fundamental principle is this. All authority is God's. All authority on heaven and earth, belongs to God. 
So in 1 Chronicles 29, this is how they describe it, and you can pick one of 20,000 different verses in the Bible. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. All authority belongs to God, and therefore it follows any authority exercised on his earth is derivative. It's delegated authority. It comes from him. He gives it and he takes it away. So this is the way R.C. Sproul says it. Just check your heart. Ready? The ultimate authority rests with God alone. We all say amen. All other authority in the universe is delegated authority, derived authority. If I refuse for no just reason to submit to the authority of my employer or my parents or my teachers or my government, ultimately I am in defiance of God. Employer, parents, teachers, government, defiance of God himself. Which is why he says in the next verse, verse 2, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. All authority belongs to God. He delegates it to human rulers who are broken, but we're still called to respect and, 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 and obey that authority because it comes from him. Which raises the question, if you're still awake, right? Raises the question, where's the place of civil disobedience, right? Or where's the place of individual disobedience? Or where's the place of ecclesiastical disobedience? When should the church say, no, we're not going to obey you? It's a good question to ask. I don't have a list for you. What I do know is this, a couple of things, right? Number one, if you're trying to figure out if you should obey the government or not, nearly always in our context, the answer is going to be obey the government. Almost always. So just take that as default, all right? You don't have to weigh up 50-50 pros and cons for every little thing. Most of the time, almost always, the answer is yes, you have to pay that damn parking fine. And it doesn't matter that you're only there for a minute over the time. Right, just do it. I also know this, where there is a really thorny issue and you don't know which way to go on this, you need to appeal to a couple of things. Appeal to your conscience and the community. So God works by his spirit through your conscience, you know that? Paul goes as far to say that even if your conscience is is telling you not to do something that God doesn't really care about, you should obey your conscience because if you don't, then you're sinning. I'll give you an example. When it comes to whether Christians should drink alcohol, you can't make a cogent case from God's word that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. If you believe that you shouldn't drink alcohol and then you drink alcohol, then you're in sin. Not because you're going against God's word, but because you're going against your conscience. Now, your conscience can be educated and changed by being more receptive to what God is saying in his word. But conscience holds that big of a deal. It holds that much power for the Christian. 
So you need to act according to conscience and have your conscience formed and shaped by God's word through his community. That's why Paul says, and he puts it in the positive, obedient way, he says in verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. It's not just a, a, a case of consequences, it's because this is the right thing to do, and you should know that in your conscience. Conscience and community. If, if you're not in the kind of situation this morning, everyone look right at me, this is really important. If you're not in a situation this morning where you're on the horns of a dilemma, if, you, if you're on the horns of a dilemma, if you don't have people that you can go to and say, brothers and sisters, I've got this issue, I need some help figuring it out, then you're in the wrong place. You're in a dangerous place. Because what the hell do you know? Right? You need to have that perspective. What do I know? I can't govern myself. Right? I can't, I can't make these decisions. How, how do I know my motives? Well, let's bring in the community of God's people who, if they're God's people, will say to you, let's go to God's word and see what he says about this. Let's pray fast, seek God's guidance on this. Let's be not conformed to this world, but renewed and transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might know what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Right? That happens in community. That doesn't happen in the shower. All right? I just save you from the fall, the inevitable fall of following your shower thoughts. That happens in community. Get in a small group. Get in an accountability group. There's, I was so pleased the other day to hear a couple of our young adult guys say, yeah, the two or three or four of them catch up regularly just to keep one another accountable. Thank God. That will save them a lot of heartache. What was I talking about? Conscience, community, right? Sometimes we really need to wrestle with whether we, whether we need to be obedient in this or that circumstance. And there have been famous cases throughout history where God's people were called away from obedience to the government. But this freedom that God gives us to seek him and to discern isn't an opportunity for us to take the clearly the right thing and, and, and instead put that aside for the expedient thing. Do you know what I mean? Like very often we can, this is just our nature, to say I know that that's the right thing to do but this would just be so much better, right? Like we'll just, just put that aside for a second. Let's look at the ends and how much they justify the means. In Christian ethics, it's almost never the case that the ends justify the means. It's almost always the case that you obey what God says and, and suffer the consequences. And God's people have done that all through the years and that's why there's so many Christian martyrs who didn't do the easy or expedient thing. Peter says it to his church like this, right? He has a church that is suffering, that is being executed day in, day out. And he says to his church, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, right? This is ultimately about him, to every human authority, whether to the emperor, the emperor who is feeding you to lions as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And then he says this, it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, right? Be known, be famous in the world for doing right, 
Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So this is difficult for us. Because often the expedient thing, the ends justifies the means thing, it's like it can be a grey area. It's not like you're going to murder someone because he's about to commit a bank robbery. You know those ethical quandaries that you're given in year 11 ethics order? It's not normally about that. It's normally about, well, I just, it's a white lie or it's, you know, like, I don't, I don't have to tell them about all the money that I've earned this year. Like, those kinds of things. And the Bible is just absolutely emphatic. And when I say the Bible, I mean God is emphatic about us not doing that and about being known for people who are transparent. So one of the guys that mentored me after I became a Christian, I found it so troubling because he was real, ultra-conservative, glasses, bookworm, right, voting whoever the most conservative candidate was. I don't know, liberal Democrats or something like that, you know, um, family first, right? And just really, you know, buttoned-down guy. But then I was at his house early on, and we used to, just, used to hang out, and we were watching movies one day, and all the movies were pirated. I was like, hang on a second. Is this okay? Like, is this all right to watch these? And he was like, yeah, well, the copyright laws are really unjust, so. Hmm. I kind of—I believed him because he knew more than I did. I'm still getting over the anarchist thing, right? So the expedient thing isn't the right thing, actually, even when the laws are dumb. Christians are called to pay the damn seven ninety-nine, seventeen ninety-nine for the movie. Do it. It might mean you have to forego something else but you'll be obeying God, which is far better. We can talk about things that might be a little ambiguous, a little grey at the edges. We can discern that as God's community. There are some times where it's very clear-cut that the path of obedience to God is disobedience to the government. Sometimes that's really clear-cut. Like we have Daniel as an example in the Old Testament, right? told to stop praying, stop worshipping God, instead worship a man who thought he was God. Daniel refused to obey. Daniel ended up in the lion's den. And the same might be true for us. Sometimes, and in some cases, God might call us to obey him and it might land us in the lion's den or in jail or with our head on the chopping block like it is for some Christians today. But that's the path of obedience. Romans 13 gives us very, very clear guidance that will almost always be the answer to your questioning on this account. But Revelation 13 gives us another picture again where you might remember the beast and the dragon uh, 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 ruling over the earth and they are calling everyone to worship them rather than God. And it says that everyone whose name is not in the book of life worships them and bows down to them. But those whose names are in the book of life, Christians refuse to do it. Blood flows, right? In the event that that ever happens in our lifetime, we know very clearly the path we are to follow. It's a path of obedience to God in spite 
of our governing authorities, knowing that all authority is given by God and he is working all things for the good of those who love him. So if you were here last week, you would have heard a really resounding, clear message about not seeking vengeance, right? giving up revenge and instead graciously giving forgiveness and, and, and pardon, forbearance, trusting in God's ultimate justice and judgment rather than seeking revenge for ourselves. And that is clear. That is just last chapter. But there's a corollary verse right here. Okay, So let's read it together. Verse 3 and 4. He says, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So here's what we have to get really clear. And I thought I was really clear at the nine o'clock and and someone has challenged me and said that I wasn't clear enough. So let me be really clear. God's Judgment and justice and wrath, right? just anger, is coming. And it will be poured out on every sin and sinner, undiluted, on every sin and sinner that hasn't been covered by the precious blood of Jesus. God's wrath is coming against every sin and sinner that hasn't been covered by the precious blood of Jesus. That is coming at the final judgment, the day of the Lord, when he returns, when Jesus comes to do justice on the earth, to pour out God's wrath on all that is wrong and broken, all the abuse and violence meted out, Contrary to God's will and ways, that that is coming. But in the meantime, while we wait for that day to come, in the meantime, God is doing justice through his appointed means, through governing authorities. Paul says, This is why they bear the sword, it's not for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So let's let's try and be as clear as we can. Okay, if, if you're here this morning and you've been abused, let's make it really specific. Let's say you've been sexually abused as a child... What are you to do? We need to be really clear about this because the church, for the most part, it seems, through history, has done the expedient thing, which is to say the evil thing, in covering this up. 
and saying, well, the ends justifies the means because, you know, this thing happened and that thing happened. You know, there's reasons for it. No! God's wrath is revealed in this life against the abuse that is prevalent in society, often meted out by those who call themselves God's servants. What do you do if you've been abused? I'm saying, well, I think Paul's saying, don't seek revenge. Trust in God's final judgment on all sin. Know that however great the injustice, no one is getting away with anything. So trust, those of you who have been abused, trust in that final judgment. That will release you from that innate desire to do justice yourself, to seek vengeance. I don't know if you've seen that really powerful movie, Calvary, where it's set in Ireland and there's a kid who's been abused, grows up, ends up meeting out vengeance against a priest who hadn't abused him but was representative of all that had broken him as a person. Paul says, don't do that. Yes, that's natural, but we're not called to live natural lives. We don't conform to the pattern of the world. Trust in God's justice and judgment. Trust in that. That is the end game. And, and while you trust in God's ultimate judgment, by all means necessary, seek God's temporal judgment through his appointed authority. Am I being really clear now? Trusting in God's final judgment will spare you from the kind of crippling sense of injustice that will break you down over time. It will enable you to extend forgiveness and grace where it is not warranted. And in the meantime, you should seek redress. You should seek justice through God's appointed means, through his governing authorities. Let me, I wrote this out. I want to read it and make it really clear. If you've been abused, if you've been wronged, trust in God's final judgment, which, unlike our legal processes, will be perfect. And... Seek God's temporal judgment and justice through his appointed authorities. And cultivate the kind of Christian community where you can, where you can lay some of that burden on those around you. You ought not be carrying that on your own. You know, we have a lot of people in our church who have been abused in various forms. And I believe that that is absolutely evil and the result of the utter depravity of humankind. And I believe that God is using it in our church so that those people can be ministers of God's grace and healing to others. And if we don't, if we don't do that community thing, then we miss it. It's wasted. 
be a wounded healer. That's what God wants. That's the good, some of the good that God wants to bring out of that devastating, evil situation. Now, I, f- I feel like I could go on and on on this point. I looked at the clock and my time's up. Let's just have the last couple of verses, okay? Verse 6 to 7. This is why you pay taxes, friends, Christians, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Hey, just, just mark that, okay? Because if, if, you're, if you're an Aussie, almost certainly that challenges your way of thinking. You pay taxes so that people who actually care a lot about you and about the state of your nation or state or local government, so that they can do it full time. So we ought to be glad to pay our taxes because it goes to paying those people. And to be honest, look, the, the, the politicians that I've got to meet through having this role, whether they're left or right or whatever, that they're almost always highly invested in doing good in the service of others. How they do it, we might disagree with, but that's their, that's their driving motivation. Not many of them would be doing what they're doing if that wasn't the case. They actually don't get paid a whole lot for the amount of work they have to do. We ought to be paying our taxes so that they can do their job. How much more ought we be, be praying for them? It's one of the great things about our liturgy and the prayer book. Every section of prayers has an, a, a spot of, of praying for governing authorities. Not just because they're over us and we want them to be good, but because God calls us to respect them and honour them. That's what he says, verse 7, give honour or give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, revenue, revenue, respect, then respect, honour, then honour. This is another area where our church can really stand out in the culture. I don't just mean our church, I mean the church in Caroline Springs. We can really stand out. Because, as I said, prevailing culture, they're, they're all politicians are morons, people in authority, we can't trust them. What if the church just said, no, we're going to love them, pray for them, and give them honour? Then we really stand out. That's part of not conforming to the pattern of the world. That's part of not being jellyfish, right? Part of being dolphins is about honouring those who God has given us in authority. We can really stand out in this way through the renewing of our mind, the realignment of our thinking around authority, government. In the first century, you can find historians from the first century who wrote about the Christians who were just gobsmacked. They're like, these Christians are weird. They're being fed to lions and they're doing it submissively. Right? They're honouring the governor, paying their taxes and being crucified. They're strange People ought to think we're kind of strange, you know. This is a way that we can stand out. So I'm going to pray that God does that because everyone in this room, irrespective of your political persuasions or your personality, your, your level of conscientiousness, whatever, even if you're the most buttoned-down, vest-wearing church boy, every one of us is challenged by this. So I'm going to pray that to whatever degree we need it, God is going to shape us 
to be more in line and aligned with his word and his will. All right, I'm going to pray that. If you agree, you give me an amen. Let's pray.